Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown, joined by Bay McLaughlin, co-founder of Brink the Hardware Accelerator. Bay, how you doing? Doing good. It's good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. Six months on, a lot has happened. We caught up as briefly as well in Shanghai, so we can talk about that, as well as all your adventures. You're flying all over the place. You're just heading out to the US as we speak. South by Southwest. Right, yeah, South by Southwest. Do you know how many miles, air miles you put in the year? You know what? I don't. I, I, people kind of use that as their their uh, machismo benchmark. I guess I, guess I gotta look. I, I guess I gotta look that up. I actually don't know. Right, it's probably gonna scare you, isn't it? But you're based in Hong Kong generally. But you... Yeah, yeah, my home home's in Hong Kong. Right. Okay. Well, we're gonna talk about some of your journeys and adventures as well. Brink. Obviously, a lot has happened in six months. So the last time you were on the show, you gave us an update and just told us what the plans were for Brink. A lot has happened. Funding since that point as well as you've got it you switched into growth mode now so can you give us a very very short overview of the last six months if that's possible yeah we did the three-year anniversary we announced the greater china fund which will be fantastic help us invest in about another 30 iot and drone and robotics companies from around the world bring about here uh we've also got a fund we announced in mina through bahrain so that's the middle east and north africa as well as a thousand square meter location uh, plus uh, some great partnerships out there with Patelco and a couple other corporates we'll announce shortly. Um, so it, it's been cool to kind of open up even further funding opportunities for hardware founders from around the world. But we've also opened up our growth, which is the last stage of the kind of founder journey where we're mm. doing financing and inventory growth opportunities through entering the China market for different founders. So it's all sort of coming together. And uh, man, we, I mean, there's so many things cooking right now that we're going to announce the next three months. It'll, it's going to only get up and to the right from here. Yeah, it's exciting. The energy levels are building. And as you're heading off to South by Southwest as well, you're going to take a little bit of a break if that's possible. I don't know if that's possible. You're going to come back refreshed, but that's another story. Totally. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. But that whole sort of scene at the moment, I mean, you're in Hong Kong, you're sort of part of the Greater Bay. I know you write about this in Forbes as well. You talk about China tech, what's going on there. One of the, the constant themes in our podcasts and the stories is the Greater Bay. What, what's going on at the moment? I mean, you're right in the heart of it, especially with hardware, IoT and so on. Can you give us a, a pulse? What's going on? Yeah, it's actually the topic uh, of my South by Southwest keynote this year is that right. the Greater Bay is going to be happening in China, not Silicon Valley. <laughs> and it's it's everything that you've heard. I think I think that the thing that people kind of misconstrue is they look at the data, 67 million people, uh, the 11 cities, all the different highways and waterways and, you know, all the cool focuses and kind of uh, big clustering that, you know, China is so well known for to have an entire city focusing on AI or a whole city focusing on IoT or FinTech or game tech or tourism tech or whatever. Um, that's all fantastic as infrastructure. Um, I don't think, you know, that you could, you could probably say too much about the potential, but I think that that's the, the key differentiator here. My main message is this is something you need to be paying attention to. It is not baked. Obviously when you put, you know, 11 new cities or cities together that have never had to be that connected, uh, it's not going to be the exact same synergy that you had with, you know, the New York's greater New York area or greater Boston or Tokyo, uh, it's going to be a different story, but it's just about the sheer horsepower and mm. capacity of this region. I mean, it's number one by size, it's number three by GDP, um, and it's just started. It's not even supposed to be finished until 2020 officially. So I think it's more of a, hey, 
if you don't have some sort of reason to be connected to this and pay attention and be out here at least part of your year, you, no matter who you are, where you live and what industry you're in, you need to get your head out of the sand and start figuring out that this is going to matter. And mm. it's, it's more of a, how it matters to you will be quite different and how it evolves, who knows, but this is going to be a huge, huge driving force of innovation for the entire planet, uh, no matter how it turns out. When you get up on stage and you deliver that message, do you think that some people will have heads in the sand? Because it seems impossible for yourself because you're right on the doorstep. And even for myself, I mean, I'm obviously aware of what's going on in Asia, but for a sort of a, a worldly group of people that might gather at South by Southwest or even people on the West Coast of the US, do you think they're unaware of what's going on? I mean, absolutely. Come on. This is, I mean, first off, you're talking about America and I'm an American, so I'll go ahead and talk to you. speak with authority. Good. But yeah, it's... <laughs> Uh, we're probably the most egocentric, self-centered group of people maybe on earth. And it's, it's not because there isn't great stuff that happens in the Valley or the States. Of course there is. Um, but it's one of those things. I mean, people just don't travel. They don't spend the time to understand what's going on over here. And it's, it's really at their detriment. So it's, what's cool about South by, and just to give a nod to the founders there, I mean, I actually, I mean, I travel all over the world. I think I did 25 different cities and 50 talks last year. And I, I seriously have never been to a conference that is more worldly. And surprisingly mm. enough, it's in Texas. So, um, it's, <laughs> How did it, that I, happen? <laughs> that's what I said. I was not expecting it, but they somehow pulled it off. But uh, it also could potentially be a little bit of a bias with the topics because I'm always the guy that does the China talk, the China right. meetups and, and such. So maybe just draws in whoever is there that's international. But um, it's impressive. And I really do think that if there's any place in the world that needs to learn it faster, it is America. Um, that's not even bringing in the whole conversation of, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, which kind of forces Europe and everyone else in the Middle East to kind of get connected to what's happening in China. But mm. yeah, America in general needs the, the wake up call for sure. Right. And you're delivering it. I mean, if anybody's going to do it well, it's going to be you. But I, I'm wondering, you know, let's sort of go beyond the the size issue, because I mean, I think a lot of Americans are quite aware there's some very big cities in Asia. I mean, they've been around a long time in Tokyo. Is what, if you take the whole Tokyo metropolis area, it's 39 million, which is about the same size as California, I believe, right? So that's not unusual. But what is it about the Greater Bay in particular? I mean, you talk about 60, 67 million people. Okay, it's bigger than Tokyo by another 50%. But what is it about there in, in particular? Is it just quantity or is there something else going on? You know, I think there's two two main things, and and that's actually where Hong Kong really comes, you know, into its own. Is that first, it's it's the clustering and the focus that China has that very few other countries uh, have the ability to do. I mean, when you hear of these entire cities that are focused, or entire you know institutions and universities that are focused on driving AI or blockchain or whatever the technology focus may be. There's just, I mean, Shenzhen is actually a perfect example of what it means to have a cluster and an entire community over a generation focus in one direction and how much progress you can make, how much, you know, GDP you can drive, how many, uh, how many people you can educate, how many innovations you can pump out by having that focus. And, and obviously China, we all know, is just the best in the world for a lot of different reasons. Um, the other side is you really have something different happening in the Greater Bay than you have in, let's say, Beijing or Shanghai and Hangzhou, where you've got some really big, important things happening in China, but no connectivity to the Western world. 
And this is where Hong Kong, I think, has had both the opportunity and somewhat has maybe gone slower than most people would want to. But this is the real opportunity to take the power of the 10 other cities and then bring it to this sort of porous semi-permeable membrane here, which is the border between Hong Kong and China, and let the Western world really get the sense, the taste, the energy of what's coming out of a huge amount of innovation in the greater Bay and South China. And I think that's where I get the most excited is the talent that's going to come back and forth, the investment. I mean, a lot of the, the new legal structures allowing foreign entities and foreign investment funds to be owned 100% by foreigners in mainland China. There's some really cool stuff going on between the Hong Kong Exchange and the Shenzhen Exchange. That's where my wife really does a lot of her work. Uh, as an investor, we obviously care about that because we want liquidity. Um, it's just so many things, but it's, it's really, I think there's two main abilities that China has that really no one else can possibly touch in terms of the clustering. And then finally having that China innovation smack dab on the border where the rest of the world can finally really participate and connect to it. So I think those are two of the dimensions that made the Greater Bay different than what we've seen historically in China. I was having a look at the the data on Shenzhen now that you bring it up. I mean, obviously we know about Shenzhen as a, a capital of hardware electronics. I think it what is eighty percent of all world e- mm. electronics have some part manufactured in Shenzhen or something like that. Yep. Yep. Um, but in terms of entrepreneurialism, something like seventeen percent of the adult population claim to be entrepreneurs. Which I know it doesn't sound a lot, but you know when we live in the world of entrepreneurs, we kind of forget that there's another world out there, people who work in finance, people who work in agriculture, people who work in real estate, whatever. 17% is actually very high compared to a lot of mm-hmm. cities around the world. And there's a big proportion of those who come from other parts of China or like yourself, have sort of you know come from different countries as well. What's the sort of the vibe? I know you're in Hong Kong, but you spend a lot of time in Shenzhen. What's the vibe like there in terms of entrepreneurialism? Is it sort of like a Silicon Valley type vibe sort of forming where, you know, being an entrepreneur is like the the de facto there? What was it like there? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly empowered. I think that's probably a better word. I mean, entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur in China um, is a very different, you know, perspective, lifestyle, uh, ecosystem than being an entrepreneur uh, in the West. I, and that's not wrong. I think that a lot of people like to compare the way that we kind of see the Western Silicon Valley startup mentality of being an entrepreneur or founder versus the, what's happening in China. It's just really hard to compare. It's really not an apple to apple kind of mentality. But what you do get when you go to Shenzhen is you get this sense of can do. This is this like, you know what? I'm just going to make it. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to do it. And the hustle at a level that, you know, I know that's kind of an overused word, but holy crap, man. Like you're not going to find a place that you just feel is pumping and people are willing to work themselves to the bone and they just think they can and they're willing to really try than Shenzhen. I think you, you don't get that even in Shanghai or Beijing. Like that's just more of a, you know, things are a little bit nicer, you know? And, mm. and so I think, I think, you know, it's it, the one, the one thing I also would say, it's not just apples, apples, but also it's very like, if you go to Shenzhen as a foreigner, you're going to have a hard time integrating and really trying to get your bearings of what you usually would see other than maybe some starting you know, meetups and things that you normally get in other places. It's just a different uh, community. It's a different history and heritage, a different way of doing business. So I think that it's, uh, it's really something that takes a long time to kind of sink your teeth into and understand. And even having been here for four years, uh, I, I mean, I would say I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm just beginning and learning. So um, there's no question you got to watch out for the entrepreneurship, um, energy, commitment, community there. But I think it's it's hard when you say that word entrepreneurship, it is a little different. So 17% or 
five percent. Um, I, I think it's just it's hard to compare it perfectly. Yeah, the hustle is an overused word, but there's a real sort of cutting edge hustle that you get in Asia, isn't there, that often you don't find in other parts of the world. But that's something that you just have to go there and experience. Mm-hmm. You, do you think, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated. I really want to be a fly on the wall. I mean, I'm, I can't make it to South by Southwest, but I, I want to see your presentation. I, I'm, That'll be on YouTube. Don't worry. All right. We've got to watch that. And uh, by the way, anybody who's listening to this who watched Bay's presentation, you can tweet us and let us know and what your thoughts were as well. But when you deliver that presentation about Shenzhen, about China, about this whole thing that's happening, do you think you're going to put some people's noses out of joint? Of course. That's what I always do. (laughs) Is that that kind of like job done? How do you take that? Look, I'm not not there to to make people, you know, feel good about things they know. I'm there to teach and educate and expose things that they aren't paying attention to. Right. And – one of, one of my takeaways is always for most of these talks, especially when I'm doing stuff about China, is don't dare tweet me in four years from now and say that I didn't tell you so. Yeah. Like, don't tell me that you didn't think about this, you didn't know about this. I mean, the coolest part is when people, you know, watch my keynotes on my YouTube channel or they come see me in person and you see those light bulbs go off. But even if they don't and you hear back from them a year or two later – you know that they spent the time to at least try, yeah. right? Like that's the first step is, okay. And I always, always try to empathize and, and say, guys, I was this person. I was the dude sitting in Silicon Valley thinking my shit didn't stink. I knew everything. Silicon Valley was like the top of the pyramid in the food chain. And then I moved to China. <laughs> and <laughs> it was, you know, four years now, but almost 10 years in the Valley. And it was such a critical thing for me. It wasn't my idea. It's my wife's idea. It was such an important moment for me after kind of that 10 years of, of thinking that there was one way of doing things that the, the Valley had really figured it out. It couldn't have been more important for me to just wholesale uproot my life and move somewhere, especially, you know, somewhere in Asia, particularly China and question all the things that I thought I knew because where the future is going, I'm sure you guys have heard, you know, this is China's century. This is not Americans, America century. We've had our time. Um, will obviously still be relevant kind of in the way that England or the UK is, but this is a very, very big trend. It is not a uh, random blip on the radar. It is not an arbitrage. This is a moment that there's the kind of center of power of the world is transitioning. Uh, we're in the middle of it. And you have to make that choice of just like anything that happens in innovation, like with AI or big data or crypto or whatever it is, are you going to find out later and be surprised or are you going to spend a little time trying to learn and try to, you know, be on top of where it's going and be in a position to actually execute and optimize, you know, depending on how this ends up playing out. So for me, that meant moving. Uh, and hopefully for people that come to the keynotes or watch my content or read my Forbes column, hopefully it's enough to get them motivated to get in a plane one day and come check it out for themselves. Right. Yeah. Plant the seed. There was a, I recently did an interview with Alison Baum, who's a partner in yep. Fresco Love VC. Allison. Yep. She was saying that, you know, a lot of people are interested in Asia and now, especially on the West Coast of the US, they have to become, you know, focused on Asia. They have to pay attention to what's going on. But there's a difference between people who are paying attention and the people who are showing up. So the ones who really Mm -hmm. understand the value of Asia, they don't have to move to Asia like you, babe, but they're getting on planes and they're going and taking a look, right? Which is kind of, I suppose for you, it's like the try, it's the first step, isn't it? You can't really understand it until you get out there. I think it's a bit of a, a mindset shift as well, that, that whole idea that, well, maybe we're not the center of the world anymore. I think some people may not find that as a comfortable idea to, 
to digest, but hey, it's happening. Get over it. Yeah. So I was going to say just one thing just on that is I, I, I kind of have, and I don't know what this is. I mean, this could work for a 60 year old. It can work for, you know, a 16 year old is I've had these three kind of epiphanies about like just filters and, and, and sort of principles for my life. And the first one is, is very, very, you know, easy, which is you need to think longer than you've ever thought before. And, and you need to be betting on long-term things. I think we're, we've been trained in the Valley has been really good. I mean, social media is a great example of we focus on finding short-term arbitrage. Like how do I growth hack my way right. to getting users and getting a fund and exiting? And, you know, these two-year mentalities are jumping into the trend of crypto just right now and trying to get an ICO, make some money and get the hell out. Like very short-term, that kind of stuff is going away. <laughs> um, you need, like, I, I implore people like think longer, bet longer, have more confidence in your ability to think and look at where it's all going. Obviously China is a, a pretty long-term trend for us, IoT and unlocking the world's physical information and data is going to be a macro trend that's going to take a generation. But the second one is around making sure that you can be uncomfortable as often as possible, which generally I say, pardon my French, just fucking move. Like you need to get out of your whatever bubble you're in. I don't care where you came from. And you need to put yourself in a culture and a position to be uncomfortable consistently because that is the new normal. And then the final is just being more flexible and your thinking and your approach than you've ever been before. And I know that having been an American, having been in the Valley, I really thought I knew how the business world worked. And then I came to China mm. and I realized that I had a million assumptions that were incorrect. There were so many different dimensions of gray and cool ways and things you could do in business that I never heard of that I wouldn't have known had I not been open-minded to question my beliefs. Uh, and kind of fun, you know, I guess the kind of conclusion of that, that rant is, I heard a great quote recently, which is, it's a really bad time to be stuck in your ways. Right, and, so true. And I think that you know, coming out here is one good way of really questioning and helping get yourself in the right mindset. That's the best advice. You know, take that advice to any of the accelerators or VCs in California. I'm just wondering how that that's going to go down. I mean, if you took somebody like a Y Combinator, they, they get the world to come to them, right? Yep. I mean, you're, you're sort of going in there and you're saying, hey, look, you've got to change the way you think. I mean, Y Combinator is a very successful model up to a point, right? But, you know, these VCs get all of the their batches, all of their startups to fly to one part in the world, which, you know, and, you know, they all sort of camp out or live around that accelerator, don't they? It's all within about a 10 mile radius. I mean, that's a little bubble. And it's so funny. It's actually the, the one thing that we do, which is I, the only team I've ran, only model I've ever heard like this in the world is, you know, we'll give teams uh, in our IoT programs 100,000 US and we'll only make them come to us for one month, not because we think that, you know, we couldn't spend more time with them. It's that you need to get a taste. You need to meet some other founders, get your, you know, your butt kicked by Asia for a minute, learn about some China stuff. And then go don't like go somewhere else, go home where you can save money, be strong, where you probably have your first customers, save that money. And guess what? You don't need, in my opinion, uh, in our opinion, you don't need to move and be closer to your investors to get the right advice and access. Right. I just think that's such an inside baseball, old school, generally white male way of looking at shit. Like you need to be close to me so I can sit down with you and like essentially babysit you as a founder is kind of what they're saying. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, these other big groups like YC, I mean, you've got to give it to them, right? Like they've totally done a great job at what they've done in the past. But I really think fundamentally we need to question this idea of you need to move close to me as the investor. Like I'm God's grift to earth because I gave you money. Right. I must know everything, right? Like it really does, in my, in my opinion, create a sort of 
myopic or, or one dimensional way of thinking about what's possible. And I think that most startups in the world today need to be thinking, how can I be global as a business as early as possible, even though that is tiring, stressful and hard in the beginning, because you won't have a choice in the future. And so you might as well take your medicine early and get used to it. Yeah. Well, no holds barred like it. No pulling punches either. Hey, that third epiphany that you talked about, Bay, you talked about, you know, getting uncomfortable or as you put it just now, getting your butt kicked by Asia. <laughs> <laughs> is your butt red sore? What's going on? What, what sort of, what is the recent butt kicking? Because I'm sure it's just a constant process. I mean, I live in Asia. I get it all the time, whether it's just sort of, sh you know, culture shock or just having to readjust my just the other day thinking, you know, like driving along the street, just like day-to-day -day stuff, driving along the street. And you can talk about this in business as well. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a you know, a Westerner. I have rights. I have a right to go through yep. this, you know, you don't have, I have a right to have my space and my, you know, freedom from noise and all this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> I just having to rethink that constantly because it's like, you know, well, actually, that's kind of how I've been brought up. And maybe that's not how people think around here. And that applies to business as well. That's right. You know, I've been, I've came from Asia first in the mid nineties, so I should know better. How about yourself? Have you got your butt kit recently? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I, I think you get, <laughs> I, I had a, uh, one of, one of my uh, mentors and, and buddies, uh, Sonny, he's the founder of Misfit and now the president of uh, Fossil. And he, he has this great way of explaining it more of an engineering perspective. It's kind of like, like you leave like a sound wave and you have these big up and down kind of, you know, peaks and troughs and that he kind of explains that over time, you know, in your career and entrepreneurship or whatever it may be, whatever path you're on, that those sort of waves, those peaks kind of start oscillating a little bit smaller over time and kind of the right. kind of gets less and less over, over time. So having been in Asia for four years now, I have to say um, you take it more in stride than the first couple of years. Um, you know, I just got demolished in so many of my first negotiations, assumptions, working with the government or corporates or investors, I mean, all these things that you don't even know you're making assumptions when you get here until you realize you really have some ingrained way of thinking about the world that, holy crap, you are right. way off center. Um, and, and so I think that over time, I, I mean, actually for me personally, in Asia, I've been here four years, but I spent about a month and a half last year in the Middle East for the first time. And we've opened now, you know, a couple of offices and a big office and a lot, put a lot of money into the Middle East and North Africa region. And that was actually for me personally, you know, my fourth year in the regions, you know, kind of getting out of my comfort zone again and making it hard on myself, you know, all over again was going and learning about the Middle East cultures. That, mm. that has been a blast in the last year. Uh, and I'm certainly expecting to spend more time there and, and potentially even Eastern Europe this year. So you can't just even stay in one place. You know, you got to look at the whole world as uh, a big oyster, you know, and you got to take advantage. Exactly. And, and collect that information and take it back to Texas where, you know, <laughs> where it's needed. But yeah, exactly. We'll download from South by Southwest in the future as well. Hey, let's sort of talk a little bit about connected hardware and the sort of projects that you're involved with and the people coming to your batch, to come into your accelerator. What's exciting at the moment? Because you're right on the doorstep of Shenzhen, we just talked about. I mean, you obviously talked about drones at the top of the show. I mean, that's sort of world central for drones and just all the drone technology and hardware. AI is obviously, you look mm -hmm. at the, the data now coming out about artificial intelligence and the publications coming out of China, 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the patents being filed by Chinese companies. This is no longer about cheap knockoffs and, you know, the manufacturers for the West, right? A lot that's is right. going on in China. I think that's probably, you know, if you were to stand up there and talk about this part to the South by Southwest audience, that's the part they're probably going to think, wow, we really are now looking at, you know, a situation where Asia could be taking the lead in terms of innovation, if not already in the lead. What sort of, what Absolutely. do you see on a day-to-day basis? Well, so there's two different sides. Um, one, one of my things this year was, you know, especially as a more of a public speaker and, and public figure in, in our industry, like I, I kind of wrote one of my commitments this year was do more of the shit you preach. <laughs> and um, that was around sort of taking my medicine and, and eating my vegetables kind of thing, which is writing my Forbes column every week. Because even though you may think you know some stuff about this area, it just takes so much energy to really understand it. So doing that research every single week and trying to dissect what's going on. I mean, some of the trends you just talked about, I, I would get up there, man, I, I would claim the same buzzwords or the same stuff. I, I'd reference what I read or saw, but I would never have understood that I not really committed to this weekly column about China tech, about where China is in AI. I just literally published another article today hmm. about AI in the car sales industry of all things. I mean, talk about a ridiculous place to like really think about artificial intelligence, but you know, Tencent led a round of 800 plus million US dollars in a round that is essentially guaranteeing literally from data science and AI guaranteeing that if I buy a car as a car company, I'm guaranteed I will move that inventory and sell it because I can rely on my data and my AI so strongly versus let's say CarMax in the US. That's this is like a three X before right. they even got to the level of yeah. AI really taking over. I mean, this is the application in practice of AI and what that means in a scale of a country like China. It's it's easy to read the buzzwords and the headlines, but I, I have to say it's it's been really profound and I hope you know more people will will communicate and ask me questions about this, you know, for my Forbes column because it really challenges me to dig, dig, dig. Mm and try to really get my head around it because it's deep. <laughs> like they are not messing around. It is not a joke. Um, and then in terms of what we're seeing, I mean, I'll tell you a couple of things that we're really, really getting excited about is, you know, we have we have kind of four themes that have emerged in our investment uh, thesis and, and they're the really profound. They matter to us a lot, which is how we feel. So medical and health technologies, I mean, we are just seeing some of the coolest stuff. Like one of our investments, uh, recently is out of uh, NYU, a PhD student, and it's a nanotechnology that we embed in uh, the soles of shoes to help people that have diabetes prevent themselves from having their legs amputated, which happens to 200 people every single day with diabetes in America. Wow. And then you've got drone technologies in our, you know, what we eat, which is the agricultural side of our business, where we actually monitor uh, eight of the top 15 plantations in Malaysia and Indonesia, also in partnership with DJI. And we're optimizing the 15% of the inefficiencies in palm oil plantations, which right now cause so much mass deforestation and extinctions of species because Americans and the world around us can't get enough palm oil for our food Mm. and cooking. So we're not going to slow down that growth. It'll double by 2020 and triple by 2050. But we can actually prevent deforestation and a bunch of species from going extinct by flying over dro- with drones over these plantations and optimizing that 15% deficiency. So there's there's are two of the themes that we're seeing that we're, we're really inspired about. We also have uh, the last couple of pieces, which is you know uh, where we live, so smart and safe cities. Uh, and then how we move, which is transportation and drone technologies, uh, on the, not just in terms of what we do in drones and agricultural tech, but there's just so many mm. 
important problems that connecting the physical world through IoT like we do uh, can actually solve. It's, it's just such an inspiring time. And then partnering with great groups that are focusing on the AI and the data side, um, you know, definitely looking at China as, as a big partner for us uh, in the future because they've got some processing power that a lot of people don't. I want to unpack some of those because this is really exciting, Baze, that got those four areas, to what extent is China, does it have an advantage in the fact that one of the, the, the themes that comes up a lot when we do these interviews on ATP is that China's consumers are far more likely to yield their personal data to, you know, a Tencent or an Alibaba for a number of different reasons. One of them being is they trust them a lot more. Mm. And therefore, you know, you're building up these huge, I mean, you talked about data, you huge sort of, you know, repositories of data, not just about everything, you know, not just in terms of like car buying behavior, but, you know, if you can track that across something like WeChat payments or Alipay or whatever, mm. you, you can collect all this data up. Is that sort of an advantage? I mean, when you talk about these four areas, how does that sort of, you know, how does the fact that you're dealing with Asian consumers and Asian people, Asian customers help in terms of gathering the data for this kind of technology? You know, that's actually really interesting. I, I don't know if we would have enough data to prove that they're that much more willing. And also, a lot of our teams, although we sell a lot of product into China, are more focused on uh, kind of using distribution channels or Southeast Asia, so Malaysia, Singapore, um, Indonesia. Uh, and I think I think uh, we might see that trend, but I think you're right from what I've also read in terms of the Chinese buyer's willingness to share that information, but I, I don't. I don't know if I can speak from you know the data within our portfolio to say that we can perfectly correlate. Mm-hmm. Saying, oh well, in China, you know their users give up their data so much faster than you know somewhere else. I, I think, generally speaking, I think you'd find that most countries, most users just give up their data. I mean, you know, barring maybe like Germany or right, you right. know somewhere like that. Like like most Americans just give up all their data. Uh, most people I know just click accept and say, sure. Uh, I can tell you from, you know, all of our portfolio, especially the teams where I sit on the board and I get to look at the data all the time. It's, it's, it's crazy the amount of data that we can collect. And I think you've really got to be willing to trust that end group that you're, you know, giving that data to that they do have, you know, your interest in mind. And I think there's actually a really awesome conversation, probably sidebar, but there's a really important conversation happening right now about the effects of social media and then, kind of our, our, you know, imperfect ability as humans to understand the impact of those technologies on, on us. And I think we mm-hmm. take that to heart at Brink. We, we really talk about the ethics of, of data quite often and make sure that what we are collecting, we're, we're doing for the right reasons. And we're really trying to help users improve their lives, not just to kind of retarget them and, and keep them more hooked in our shit, you know? Right, right. Yeah, because it's too easy to do the latter. Let's start with your first area that you, you mentioned, medical technology. So mm-hmm. medtech. Um, I know, for example, you're interested in quantified self. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about this on the last episode, and I've seen you post, you know, updates about QS and meetups and so on that you're involved in. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit yeah. about what QS is? Because if people are listening to this for the first time, they may be aware of some of the technologies and they may be using it without knowing it. But mm. what exactly is QS? Yeah, Quantify Self is a, is, a, is a concept that started in San Francisco where I was part of the chapter there when I used to live there. It's really, really simple. It's just this assumption that if you don't collect data about yourself or whatever you're trying to improve about your life, it's really hard to do it because 
you generally have this sort of cognitive dissonance or bias in your mind where like you think you go to sleep and you wonder why you wake up tired, but you tell yourself every day, but I go to bed early. Mm-hmm. And then you finally track it one night and you go, crap, I laid down at 10. I didn't go to bed till one thirty. What happened? <laughs> and right. you, you know, people do that for a decade and so, or longer. And so it's just a very, very kind of basic uh, meetup that happens all around the world. You can check it out at quantifiedself.com or meetup.com. You'll see, I think there's 250 or more chapters and there's something like 50,000 members around the world. It's a really big movement. Uh, we actually, if anyone's, uh, this probably won't air before it's uh, before the event, but we're, we're doing our first um, one to kick off the year this year, this uh, tomorrow. And the cool part was we're actually starting to specialize in different topics. And we're actually doing women's health in Hong Kong, which is a huge topic. Mm. Because a lot of people have questions about the you know, specificity around the, the environment they live in. Because living in Hong Kong is sure as hell different as living in Europe or Australia or America. And so um, I think it's just a really important you know, general, general purpose tool for anyone that's interested in you know, looking at their life. It could be your health. could be your efficiency. could be your finances. could be you know, just about anything. But if you want to improve it, it's a lot easier if you try to quantify it first. Right. What do you do yourself personally? Do you, I mean, beyond sort of tracking the obvious, like your sleeping patterns and so on, do you do anything a bit more sort of hardcore? Oh, uh, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm ridiculous. I, uh, I, so, I mean, every single morning, you know, definitely do the sleep, wake up, do the uh, five or six readings on the connected scale. So, you know, muscle mass, uh, water percentage, bone density. And then I do the blood pressure reading with the blood pressure cuff. I do the temperature with the thermo. Um, and then I obviously have my Apple watch on every single day. Then I have my standing desk tracks me when I'm at the desk. Obviously my, my phone tracks a bunch of stuff about where I go, what I do while I'm on my phone. Uh, and then if you want to go to the most hardcore level, that level is that's when you start getting into the intrusive testing, hmm. which I'm a big fan of. So that's the finger pricking, the microbiome, like your saliva and your you know, earwax and what's in your belly button and all this kind of crazy shit. <laughs> like, um, I, I'm, I'm probably a little overkill. Um, but again, it's, it's for me, I'm just one of those, that's kind of my whole pioneer mindset. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, it's just the whole living in beta concept for me as a person. It's just, I really do think you need to be open-minded experimenting. Don't Mm. get stuck in your ways. And, and I'm just, I just always have to be willing to try and it might not be useful, but you won't know unless you try it. Yeah. I spoke to PK Razum last, uh, a couple of weeks ago on on the show and he was talking about quantified self and the testing that he does he does uh the biome testing which mm-hmm. is I, I was unaware that it's possible which is basically i mean people may be may be aware of the fact you can sequence a genome so you can yep. actually sequence your dna whereas biome is is what i understand is it's effectively sequencing or measuring or quantifying your bacteria so yep. everybody has a sort of different kind of flora and fauna inside their body right the bacterial makeup as i understand so are you doing that it just seems to be pretty that's right specific, yeah, yeah so right? I've, done, I've done that yeah and the problem the problem with that is it, it's really interesting it's just very nascent technology uh and science so if you think that you know measuring and understanding and and trying to make sense of your genetics is tough just imagine on like a rough scale sequencing and understanding your biome or your bacteria is like 10 times harder right right so it is interesting. Uh, the challenge is it changes a lot. What's different about your genetics, although your genes can express themselves over time. So if you express, you know, if you're like a, a NASA scientist and you're going up and getting a ton of radiation every single year going into space, well, you know, your genes are going to evolve differently than if someone's just sitting on the ground their whole life. Or if someone's like me living in a more uh, polluted area like South China versus someone who's sitting on the mountaintop in Colorado, 
you know, we're going to have different exposure and mm. our genes will express themselves differently. Um, but generally speaking, your genes are your firmware or hardwiring. You're sort of given this program and you really don't get, get to do much about it. Whereas your bacteria changes dramatically. <laughs> I mean, it's where you live, what you eat, who you live with, what kind of animals you have in the house. Like, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. So mm. imagine how many more variables come into what, where the water comes from, you drink, the air you're breathing, the dogs and cats you're around, the neighbors you have, the person you're you know sleeping with, like all of that stuff versus this fixed data set, which right. is your genes. So just imagine how much harder that is. And measured in billions, right? Measured in billions and mm-hmm. trillions, probably. Mm-hmm. If you take you take something like quantified self, I mean, the reason why I, I was fascinated by this is because it sort of covers full circle. You mentioned, I don't know who, where, you know, who, if there was a grandfather of the QS movement, but it's sort of that kind of movement emerged from places like San Francisco, as you say, and mm-hmm. you, you have sort mm-hmm. of, I mean, obviously people like Tim Ferriss has done a lot to put that onto the map. And then you have on the health side, people like Ben Greenfield on, you know, more like in my world, the endurance sports athletes who have been quantifying themselves for a number of years, but to put all yeah. that together, that's all come from the West coast of the U S effectively. Mm-hmm. And now you have the technology being developed or the innovation happening in places like the Greater Bay in China. How, how do we sort of match all that up? Is that sort of the pattern for the future where, you know, the real creative idea, the lifestyle idea, that sort of idea level innovation would come from San Francisco and the technology would actually be built out in a place like Shenzhen? Or is that just sort of a a handing over phase where one world is moving into the next. Can you see sort of how that's going to work in the future? You know, I think there's two sides to that. I think from the San Francisco or the West Coast way of thinking, I think people, they are just sort of hardwired to try to, you know, experiment, try. That's that sort of entrepreneurship uh, startup mentality that's, that's sort of been baking and, and being distilled there since the 60s, right? So mm. that that's pretty pretty much just the way they think. And that, you know, it's sort of like that. I grew up in the East coast. I'm from Virginia originally. And my wife's from New Jersey, but it's sort of that mentality of, Oh, those West coasters, you know, like those Californians. And it's just a different mindset. If you're Mm -hmm. from America, you get what I'm saying. If you haven't been to America, just trust me, it's different. And so I think it's, it's important to recognize there's just sort of a, a culture there of being a little bit different and thinking outside the box. But in terms of where the technology is made, I think you're right. Uh, especially on the trackers. I mean, obviously, when you're talking about sensors and hardware, South China, Shenzhen is the epicenter of the planet. That's not going anywhere in our lifetime. Um, and that means that you're going to have some story about it coming from here. Now, the, the thing that I think is more interesting to me is around culture. So there's a very, I, I talk about product culture fit versus product market fit. It's one of the things I announced as a concept at South by last year. And I think it's a very, very, interesting dynamic out here in Asia about what people uh, pay attention to in terms of where they spend their time, what they revere and what they respect and where they're willing to kind of give their energy. And when it comes to quantified self, it's tough. You know, you go around the different chapters around Asia, you don't see a bunch of local people. You know, it's a lot of foreigners for the most part. And Mm -hmm. I think there's, it's not that people don't wear wearables and, you know, some of the stuff I do, uh, some of the confidential stuff we do in the R&D side in our business is we're looking into that side of the healthcare business and figuring out what is it, you know, what is it that help people care about their health and, and what are those triggers and those cultural norms in someone that's, you know, from South China or China versus Indonesia or Singaporean, because it is different. Than Americans and Europeans by a lot, it's really different. And so it's not about who makes the tech, 
uh, it's really a mindset and a culture thing. And, and that's pretty challenging to crack, but mm. I find it endlessly fascinating. I was wondering if it would change. I mean, that, that's a fascinating idea, that product culture fit. If you were to take Apple, obviously you worked for Apple for a number of years. As it says on the box, it's designed in California, uh-huh. right? Even mm. though it's made in China, which is kind of important. I wonder if that's sort of the, the perfect best of both worlds. You know, in the future, it's almost like all the lifestyle brands as well. I mean, if you go into surf, they're all designed in California, but made in China, right? Is that sort of how things will be in the future? I wonder if you're going to have designed in China, made in China. Is that going to be something that will be the sign of the times that China doesn't necessarily need the West Coast? That What you talk about, that cultural mindset that people are, you know, that's not only the prerogative of the guys in San Francisco or down in the Valley or whatever, that can now be found in China. I, I, I think this is one of my favorite topics because I always ask people, you know, even, even though my mom is invested in Alibaba stock, she heard it was great. She yeah. still never bought anything on AliExpress. And I, and I really ask myself, you know, I wonder, I go, huh, what brand is it going to be? Even though everyone in the States for the most part has probably heard of Jack Ma or Alibaba, um, has anyone, do you know anybody that's sitting in the States going, oh yeah, I'm on AliExpress all the time, just like I'm on Amazon. Right. Of course not. Yeah. And so you may have heard of the brand, uh, but you certainly don't have any access or understanding. And, and so one, just to get out, zoom out for any of those uh, Asia or China buffs that, that are listening, going to go deep on you for five seconds. This is where I think the One Belt, One Road, not the land-based one, because that still takes forever. The new announcement of the Polar Silk Road, that blew my mind. Because if you can connect... Right now, if you take a ship and you put a product in South China or wherever, and you try to get it to the States and you go through the normal, you know, uh, Suez Canal, all this mm. crap, and it takes forever, right? So you take what, six to eight weeks to get product to Europe and the States, whereas you take the Polar Silk Road, which would have to be in partnership with Russia, and you go up and over, you can get stuff over to America and Europe in two weeks, wow. sometimes even maybe one week. And what that means is the challenge and the reason, I'm just using Alibaba because it's an easy comparison to Amazon and a lot of people have heard about them, is that you can now for the first time, like the, the challenge of getting a Chinese business to be relevant and in Westerners' lives every day is generally supply chain oriented. You can mm. market, you can buy every single huge agency, buy every chief creative officer. China has more money than God. They can get every creative person on earth that they really cared to like get the brand right, which is what a lot of people think is wrong, which is just not true. Um, it's about Westerners are now accustomed, just like the Chinese, if they hit a button, they want to get something in a day or an hour mm. or two days max. The problem with the supply chain in China and the way Alibaba works is they don't have fulfillment centers sitting everywhere across America like Amazon does. But if you get that Polar Silk Road up and running, you start decreasing that two months to two weeks. You start having China at every doorstep in the West almost overnight. And that is where I think we're going to see the game change. I don't think we're going to see, you know, uh, before that is solved some huge, you know, amazing brand randomly penetrate, like right. even WeChat that hasn't penetrated the West, right? So I think there's a couple of things that have to shift fundamentally. Um, but I think you're right. That will be the kind of watershed moment when foreigners start using and adopting and, and really just having a Chinese brand or technology in their day-to-day lives. It hasn't happened yet, but I think part of that could really happen when the Silk Road comes together. Mm. Yeah, uh, Alibaba obviously 
at that sort of the tip of the spear, really, with that that change, aren't they? I mean, Jack Maher is out there now that we're used to seeing his sort of funny face on TV. <clears throat> and he was there in Davos and he yep. speaks pretty good English. I mean, he was an English teacher, I believe, by Yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's solid. <laughs> right, I know, exactly. I mean, that sort of counts a lot, right? And because he's not going to be given the benefit of the doubt, is he, by the media? He's always going to be treated as a as a, a foreign entrepreneur who doesn't speak English. If, but the way he comes across is fantastic. And then he's there with Donald Trump prom- promising, what, a hundred? Was it a million jobs? I just thought that was fascinating, that article in, I think it was the Washington Post, saying that he's going to bring a million jobs to China. You know, Trump's been banging on about taking jobs for years and years. And there's Jack Ma just rocking up and saying, yeah, we're going to bring you jobs now. We're going to bring you a million jobs with their, you know, their, t- their platform, right? So they're going to yep. effectively give all these sort of mom and pop stores around the US an ability to sell and, and use their, you know, really what is not a Trojan horse, but a, a step, a stepping stone really into the American market for them. Right. So absolutely, absolutely going to see some change there. Let's just talk a little bit about where you're based, because I think it's important to people to understand where you're sort of like your locus of operations are. I mean, you're actually based mm-hmm. in Hong Kong, right? just over the, the way from Shenzhen. Is that a conscious decision? What, what's all that about? Yeah, and I think, I mean, look, I moved here when I was 30. I wasn't some spry 21, 22-year-old, like a bunch of my uh, my team that moved straight to mainland China because they, you know, said, why not? Um, we're I, I'm fortunate enough, uh, my two co-founders had some very legit China chops and experience uh, from their time there. And so it really allowed me the benefit of the doubt to not have to go straight and live behind the firewall and be there for a long period of time. I was really given a springboard. Um, I really don't mind China. I mean, if I had to make the, the conscious choice, I mean, I would still live in Hong Kong. I really do love Hong Kong. Um, but I think be, between our offices here in Hong Kong and Guangzhou, which are on the far side of the Greater Bay or the PRD, you know, we really do have the bookends of the entire Greater Bay region figured mm. out. Um, and then we have the jump off point where we have offices in Bahrain, Tel Aviv, Barcelona. Uh, we'll be opening up two to three new offices this year that we'll announce uh, in Eastern Europe, other parts of Asia. So there's there's really no better place if you're trying to, to support a China operation than to be on both sides. We work in our factories in Shenzhen constantly, uh, which is critical. Uh, and I, I don't know, like I feel like if you're a foreigner and you want to be here long term, you got to give yourself a little bit of a break. You know, it might right. be China, it might be Hong Kong, it might be Singapore, but you got to do whatever's right for you. Uh, and for me and my wife, we've been you really fall in love with Hong Kong. The, the quick access to China, I mean, I go all the time. The yeah. new bullet trains that are coming in, 15 minutes to Shenzhen, 45 minutes to Guangzhou. You must be kidding. It's going to be 15 minutes to Shenzhen from Hong Kong. 15 minutes. Was that from one Kowloon, when, when is that from ICC? Wow. It's opening in it's opening in Q3. That's incredible. 15 I mean, how, minutes. Right. I mean, just wondering how the, how long the mass transit takes from the airport to Kowloon. It's about 20, 30 minutes. Uh, it's about 20. Right. No, it's 24 to Central. So it's about one more stop. So it's probably about 18 to 20 minutes. And then you're 15 minutes and you're in mainland China. Wow. That's insane. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, how far could you get in New York or San Francisco in 15 minutes? <laughs> Next block. <laughs> <laughs> That's I always make a joke. When I was in San Francisco and I used to go commute down to Cupertino, the Apple campus, it would take me longer right, right. to get from San Francisco to Cupertino than it takes me to get my house to my office and, and Nanshan having a coffee in China. 
like, incredible. Is that on the maglev? Have they got the maglev opened up? No, or no, that... they only got the maglev in Shanghai. That's oh. just taking a, a that's just taking a minibus. Come on, bring it down. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So, I mean, you know, it's an interesting point about being based in Hong Kong as well. I, I wonder as well is that you know maybe in terms of longevity, being based in Hong Kong is a smarter move because a, it's probably more global, isn't it, as a city or historically? Yes, but also it doesn't. You know, China must just kind of suck it out of you because it's just so full on. Like a place like Shenzhen, mm. like, does it leave you with much left at the end of the day? I don't know. <laughs> it's I like South say, by I, Southwest. I, I always say that to people. It's not wrong. It's just it's just full on, right? You're in a place that doesn't speak your language. The culture is quite different. There's, a, I mean, it has more space than Hong Kong. Like Hong Kong is denser than than uh, Shenzhen, but you just have more people, more congestion, more stuff going on. And you, I always come back from China exhausted. Like yeah. no matter how many times I've gone, how long I've stayed there, I'm just like done at the end of the day. So um, I think you got to just, again, figure out what's right for you so you can, can get that regeneration and pull that energy back together to get hit it again the next day. All right, let's do this then. Somebody who's going to be watching your South by Southwest presentation or somebody who reads, importantly, reads your Forbes articles as well. You know, you've planted a seed in their head about Asia what, what's, how do they get started? I mean, do they do what you do and just sort of rock up, you know, and with a backpack on and just say, right, it's going to happen here. What's the best way of doing it? What's the sort of the low risk way? Of, or is there a low risk way? Have you just got to fucking move, as you say, and just, you know, <laughs> get out of your comfort zone? How do you manage that? Because people are going to have different sort of risk profiles, aren't they? Some people are not going to be able to do it as probably as aggressively as you did. What sort of advice can you offer people who think, okay, I've got to get something going in Asia. I've got to have this as part of my business. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's right. You got to identify there's certain certain grades, you know, or levels. And, and I very much think that it's a personal decision. You've got to be honest about it because there's no reason to go jump on a plane tomorrow, find yourself in mainland China, be way out of your depth, and be super stressed all the time. That's not good for you either, right? You're not going to be that effective. So I think it's really important to give yourself different options. So I usually give tell people, look, do a couple of things. The first is you just need to get educated. So I hope that my Forbes column, you can always just check out, you know, search China Tech uh, on Google and I always come up usually first, second article or you can search Bay on Forbes. Um, I think you should read a couple of articles. One of my favorites is Make China Great Again. It is such a yeah. badass yeah. Uh, overview of what's really going on out here. Um, I also think downloading WeChat is such a cheap, free, easy way to get started. And I'm feel free to add me uh, just beta bay one or follow my OA account. I'm, I'm happy to introduce you to different groups. And there's so many groups you can join that are completely free and open where people are learning and talking. And then you're finally in that kind of local stream of consciousness, even if you're overseas. Um, I definitely think a trip isn't a bad way to start. You don't have to move here. There's lots of great conferences. There's lots of great reasons to pop out and just check it out for a week, seven, 10 days, whatever. Um, and I think kind of like the deeper end, you know, if you're really ready to go, there's this really cool trend called mass entrepreneurship that China is really incentivized all of the local governments around China to find schemes and, and programs to bring entrepreneurs from overseas into China. Mm-hmm. Uh, we help a lot of teams come to the Tianha, the Guangzhou government, help them get set up, help them enter the Chinese market. Uh, but there's different the, uh, schemes or programs you can Google all over the place and figure out based on what you specialize in or what your industry, uh, what industry you're in, there's a government in China somewhere that has a bunch of money that's super incentivized to bring you over there. So it's, if you're ready to go, go, 
that's a good way of getting a lot of the expenses paid for and, and, you know, start off at the deep end. But I think choose your path. Feel free to connect with me. Obviously, I'm very, very happy to answer any questions. I, I do questions of the day every single day. Mm. Um, so if you want to, if you want to ask me anything, just use hashtag Ask Bay to Bay and my team will pick it up and I'll, I'll make sure to ask and connect the dots if I can do anything to help if, if possible. I'm sure the listeners are going to be, have their ears pricked by that last point about governments in China. There's some, there's some city government with cash trying to allure entrepreneurs to China. And by the way, you know, just look at the data. There's 15 cities in China bigger than New York. So it's not like we're dealing with some small backwater somewhere. How do I search for that? You said Google it, but what would I give me an idea of where to start searching? I mean, if I'm in IoT or I'm yeah, in- I mean, just yeah, yeah, IoT be Shenzhen. Just look, just look for uh, uh, China government um, entrepreneurship programs or right. sponsorships. Um, also feel free. Like I said, I mean, I can even hook you up with, uh, my buddy Jan from startup grind. Uh, he's willing to connect and help anyone out. Uh, he's just at your China guy on, um, on Twitter. Uh, we're always trying to find ways to help anyone, even if it's not in my back, you know, in my industry, like IOT or hardware, it's all good. We just want to make sure that people get connected with the right information, have a good experience their first time when they come out here. And I, and I do mean it. If you're here in Hong Kong or if you come to Guangzhou, open door policy for my company, Brink. We'll host you, get you a coffee, put you up for a day on the desk, whatever you need. We're always, we always want to make sure people that come this far have a good first experience, even if it's not you know, related to our business. Fantastic. That's awesome. It's a bit of that full, full circle Silicon Valley vibe in Asia at the moment. You know, that pay it forward, help everybody out. I mean, that's the one thing I love about the vibe in Asia at the moment is that there's a real sense of everybody can have a slice of the cake. You know, I mean, China's a great big market. So there's not just one guy who can be a bridge to the world. I mean, everybody's helping each other here. So that's right. But it's been really inspirational having you on the show again. And thanks for so much for coming back. And good luck in South by Southwest, which is probably, you know, you would have done it by the time that this goes live. So, you know, well done for your speech. What <laughs> an awesome speech. And you can go and find it on YouTube as well. <laughs> and he'll Check be back. It out. Ba- yeah, Bay to Bay, South by Southwest. That's right. Exactly. And where can we find out more about you? I know you've been very generous in giving out your details in terms of WeChat and so on, but where's the sort of the, the jumping off point where I can find out everything about Bay McLaughlin? You know, uh, fastest way to get me to connect you really, really quick is just at Bay to Bay on Twitter. Um, but definitely my website's got everything, just Bay to Bay dot me or even on my Forbes columns. I'm, I'm writing that and communicating with my, my readers every single week. But if, if you can't find Bay to Bay on the internet, it means you didn't spell it right. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's easy enough to find me. But you don't know how to use Google, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, Bay McLaughlin, everybody, co-founder of Brink Bay. Wonderful having you back on Safe Travels, and hopefully we can get an update from you soon. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.